0: I'm Roxanne Cody and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers, and it'll help you discover new books in all genres. It'll give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and especially keep you up to date on what's going on in the literary world. Amy Chu is best known as the Tiger Mom, but it's her latest book, Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations that has everyone buzzing. R.J. Julia was lucky enough to host an event for Amy, and here's what she told me. We are joined today by Amy Chua, the best-selling author of the books including World on Fire, about globalization, Day of Empire, about hyperpowers, which is one of my favorite books, by the way, uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. She is a John Duff professor of law at Yale Law School. And she has received all of these awards, which I don't think I realize, named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, Atlantic Monthly's Brave Thinker, one of Foreign Policy's Global Thinkers of 2011. And on top of that, she got Yale Law School's Best Teaching Award. But he, here's the part of Amy uh, that I'm the most fond of. She is never one to shy from provocative points of view, nor one who doesn't bring to bear her substantial and iconoclastic intelligence to everything that she does. And she has now done this successfully again with her new book, Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. Here she offers a bold new prescription for reversing foreign policy failures and Overcoming Our Own Destructive Political Tribalism at Home. Amy, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. So you talk about political tribes, and you start by addressing it from a foreign policy standpoint, talking about Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Venezuela. So let's start with the more basic concept. How would you describe a political tribe?
1: Um, well, I actually use tribe uh, in a very specific way. So the word tribe, you can, it can refer to a literal tribe, like the Afghan Pashtun tribes or the Sunni tribes. It is often used to refer to an ethnic affiliation. You'll hear people talking about the Japanese tribe or the Jewish tribe or it could just refer to a modern identity driven, you know, kind of tribe. Mm-hmm. And all I mean, because I'm not you know, getting into definitions, is I'm talking about an identity where your identity becomes so bound up with the group that it's just an intense attachment. You basically feel like these are my people and I'm sticking with it. And actually, sports is a great example. I mean, if you if you take, you know, somebody think of your favorite uh, sports team and then have how you feel about that. And tribes can be very lighthearted. But my point is that when tribalism takes over the political system, that's not healthy because once you connect with a tribe, you start to view everything through the lens of that tribe Mm. and facts start to not matter. And I think that's what we're seeing in our public discourse. I mean, you can, we can get to this later, but you, you could present some people the same statistics and facts about guns and killing. And they will look at it, and half of the people will conclude, based on the same statistics, that therefore we need more guns, and the other half will conclude, therefore we need fewer guns. So that's, that's the kind of uh, distortion of thinking that, that tribalism can do.
0: Amy, when I read the chapters, particularly on Vietnam, but all of them, And so you very carefully talk about how our policymakers overlooked basic tribal things, like in Vietnam, the capitalist-ish Chinese minority in Vietnam, you know, Iraq not paying attention to the impact of the Sunnis and the Shia. But what I was struck by is these guys in the United States— deciding foreign policy, obviously did wanted to do the right thing. How is it that they overlooked those distinctions to the sort of disastrous degree that they did? I think that um, the reason for our blindness to the group identities
1: that matter most to people on the ground in the countries we're supposedly trying to help stems from both the best of America and from the worst of America. Um, by the best of America, I really think that we have this completely exceptional history of successful assimilation. Um, Not all groups, of course, but in general, um, you know, the thinking is, you know, Italians and Hungarians and Germans and Jews and Poles, they all became Americans within one or two generations. Similarly, why can't Sunnis and Shias and Kurds? And we We romanticize democracy as the mechanism, which is, you know, we just throw in some elections and then somehow they're going to assimilate. So I think part of our blindness is actually rooted in our own very exceptional history. We think in terms of nation states and great ideologies. You know, so when we go into these countries, we're thinking of capitalism versus communism or the next stage was Authoritarianism versus democracy, and then we move from that to terrorism versus, you know, good people. But those are the ideological lenses that we use. The second, the darkest, the the other part of it. When I say our group blindness is we're also rooted in something very dark about America is and I now hate this term because I think it's so overused, but racism.
0: Mm.
1: I think that uh, racism, it's weirdly group-blind. It's also very group-conscious because you're dividing the world into superior or inferior people. But it's very group-blind because it flattens. So in Vietnam, this is amazing that this just happened to me. I I did a a TV thing, and I was going to give an example. So my Vietnam example is something I'm most proud of because there's, You guys probably know a lot about Vietnam now. Um, Everybody knows that we really overstated how much it was about communism versus capitalism, that we had this Cold War lens, whereas really it was much more about the Vietnamese people wanting their sovereignty and independence. But what I bet most of you don't know, um, and I've talked to even experts, is that uh, there was an ethnic dimension to this, too that is there was a the, the capitalists in Vietnam all the rich people were overwhelmingly not actually members of the Vietnamese people they were part of this 1% uh, very small chinese minority and the French history books actually note this. So I think it's very interesting that they're, the colonizers were, were very obsessed with ethnic differences because in their divide-and-conquer policies, they really used that. So I was going back to this TV show. I said to my somebody, I said, I'm going to give this example of Vietnamese, the Vietnam War, the, the capitalists were actually Chinese. And this is just two days ago, talking to a person with a PhD. And she said, oh, don't use that example, because I think in America, everyone thinks that the Vietnamese and the Chinese are the, are the same thing. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't think that she actually did but it was so amazing that she was saying people are not going to get the example because they're gonna get this picture of people who look alike so I t- had to use a different example um but that's I, pathetic right but um to I, I think it is actually true that it, it was hard for them to see and I sympathize you know it's like 17 18 year old soldiers from Iowa going and you know I mean my mom used to think a lot of Caucasian people looked alike yeah um you know it's it's you know and but they all were gooks, right? So, so anyway, that's a long answer. But that's an example of, um, you know, the, another reason that we sometimes miss these differences.
0: The thing that I thought about reading these examples, that, which is probably another form of racism, but we somehow understand tribes in other parts of the world, right? We think, oh, yeah, they, they're tribes because it seems sort of less developed, yeah. Less developed than we are. So, of course, they have tribes and they operate in that way. But not here. But not here. Yeah. And so the point that you're making is not so quick, honey. Exactly. I love it that you put it that way.
1: Yeah. Um, So that's the blindness uh, here. Um, First of all, I think that tribalism is, well, tribalism is hardwired in all of us. There's now, there are some really cool studies in the book. Um, Oh,
0: talk about that one with the the little kids wearing the the blue shirts. Yeah.
1: Uh, This is um, a a study
0: where um,
1: a bunch of researchers gave, uh, I don't know, a bunch of kids between the ages of four and eight, they just split them into two random teams, you're on the red team or the blue team, and gave them corresponding t shirts of the same color and then um, they put them in front of computer dockets and they showed them computer edited pictures of children either wearing red shirt or blue shirts no other difference and in asking that what they found is just even though these children knew nothing about the children in the pictures (laughs) um they consistently liked the ones in their wearing their color better wanted to allocate more resources to those people and identified them as morally superior people and then later they told stories about the just little stories and this is almost the scariest thing the children displayed unconscious bias that is, when they were asked to repeat things, they consistently remembered more good things about the people wearing their color and consistently remembered more negative things about the people wearing on the other side. So there are studies showing that it's neurological, that, you know, when you see people on your team, something good happening to them, things light up in the right part of the brain. So hard, I think tribalism is hardwired, and in a way, I think you could see the Enlightenment uh, uh, and the the great American experiment as an attempt to overcome tribalism. And yes, you're right. I'm saying it's it's um, it's not impossible. I think that we should be going for that. But it is not as easy as just drop a ballot box in the middle of Kazakhstan, you know, and expect all these tribal affiliations
0: to go away. And there, you, you can get the feeling that there's no tribalism. I want to go backwards for a second, because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about so we've had immigrants coming to this country all along, mm-hmm. right? So first they came from England, then they came from—I I I won't have the order right, but, you know, so we had Italians and Irish and Polish people and Hungarians and whatever. Yet, is it because they were all white that their identity in buying into the American notion became collective, and was it when the immigrants that were coming in that started to look different? In other words, if you were German versus Irish and you were walking down the street, no one necessarily knew you were German or Irish. right? Irish people would say, yes, they would, but we won't go there for a second. So was it was it the fact that the immigrants started reflecting literally different skin colors that started breaking down the notion of them buying into the American dream?
1: Well, the the answer is absolutely yes. So there are many books that I'm sure you guys know of, like, you know, how the Irish became white, um, how the Jews became white. A lot of these groups, uh, when they first got here, weren't didn't quite count as white. So so a lot of it is uh, it's a construction, you know. um, But by and large, yes, the immigration Uh, In the book, the statistics are startling. For, like, the first almost 200 years, most of the immigrants are from Europe, um, and the numbers are much lower. Starting after the 1980s, or 60s, actually, when we open things up, the numbers expand, I mean, really exponentially. I'm talking about going from, you know, 60,000 to, like, 7 million in one year, you know, year after year. And in the last couple of decades, they have largely come from Asia, Latin America, and Africa. I sometimes think people who want to talk about ethnicity and race want to have their cake and eat it too, because on the one hand, it's a social construct. But on the other hand, what you're saying is so taboo. You're just talking about a different skin color. Um, so, but I'm going to put that aside. Yes, that's one thing I say a lot. One of the reasons we are where we are right now is because of this phenomenon often called the browning of America. Mm. So for the first time in U.S. history, whites are on the verge of losing their majority status. Um, so it predicted sometimes maybe 2044, 2050. That's when the usual predictions happen. Um, so for the longest time when whites were, uh, you know, a very, very dominant majority here, when you're a dominant majority, you can do all kinds of terrible things and nobody can do anything about it because that's it's, it's very stable in a kind of invidious way. But you can also afford to be more generous. Um, you're not threatened. And But what's happened now is with this this weird demographic situation, every group in America feels threatened. So it's not just whites, it's not just blacks and minorities who feel threatened. Whites now feel threatened. I have those studies that show mm-hmm. I think it's 63, 67% of certain white segment population feel that they are more discriminated against than minorities. Um, there are, it's, it's, it's documentable. Um, It's not just Muslims and Buddhists and Jews who feel threatened and discriminated against. Christians now feel under siege. With the Me Too movement, men feel under siege, straights and gays. And when people feel threatened... This is when they become they become more insular. They 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 retreat into their own, become more defensive, and basically more tribal. So I think that's part of why we see identity politics um, on both sides of the political spectrum right now.
0: So one piece of information and then a question. One of the authors I had interviewed last year was Beverly Tatum, yeah. and she right. wrote a book uh, called "Why Are All the Black Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria?" And she wrote a 20th anniversary edition, which was basically almost a redo of the book. She had two statistics in there that were stunning. One is 80% of the children born in the United States now are non white. 80%. And over 50% of the kids in K through 12 are now non white. Now, in that category of non white is included every group that might not have the purest of white skin would include Asian Americans, right. Native Americans. But isn't that a surprising statistic? 80%. So if you think about your number of the change since yes. the 60s, and you think about the manifestation of that now, that is a pretty stunning change.
1: Yeah, and it's... it's. Um I think it's it's very threatening for a lot of people, and I think it makes sense that people are anxious about this this immigration transformation. So, first of all, I am the biggest fan of immigration. Yeah, we're I'm the, both the child yeah, of immigrants, right? We're children of <laughs> immigrants. I've written two books on how immigration is the is the is the, is the source of our strength in this country. But I do think we're at a ridiculous moment in America where we can't have a conversation about this. So this kind of demographic change is anxiety producing. And I, I don't think the progressives help things very much by just, you know, there's this kind of like, yay, browning of America, finally, we're going to get to the better place. And anybody who doesn't agree with this is a racist. And uh, to me, that just contributes to the problem. I think it is, it's, there are massive transformations going on in our country and, you know, we're very comfortable here because it's just what we see all the time. But I think for a lot of Americans, it's it's kind of harder to accept, even if they want to. So, so that's why I, I'm frustrated with the immigration debate. I feel like um, it's almost like a game of gotcha. And whereas there are real concerns, like how can we limit? What are what rules? What are mm-hmm. what rules should we have? And I I kind of think that both sides are are being irresponsible.
0: And I Amy, mean, to what extent do you think? all of this tension and worry is as much about the inequality of wealth as it is about what people look like. I mean, when you think about what contributed to the rise of Trump, which you talk about also in the book, you know, a lot of liberals would like to say well, those people are obviously not understanding the real world. Well, they would say, no, you don't really understand the real world. So so to what extent is that the bigger driver?
1: Um, So this is another one of my great frustrations. I think the current debate is framed in a really stupid way, either or. We've wasted so much time. Is it racism that propelled him, or is it economic anxiety? How can smart people waste so much time? I mean, we're talking about 60 million people. Of course, both factors played a role. Different people voted for different reasons. Sometimes these coalesce. I also think that just kind of lump the desire by some to lump all of these people are racist is also contributing to the problem. So the book tries to give a much more systematic mechanism. I have one line that it might take a little while to unpack, but I think it captures a lot of what's going on in America. I think race has split America's poor and class has split America's whites, Mm -hmm. white majority. And I think that's a more nuanced way. So America has never had a really strong working class party. We've never had a really strong socialist party, unlike the European countries and there are many reasons for that. Some are positive, the American dream. My favorite story is I had a Vietnamese student, actually, who in a seminar I taught at NYU said, I'm a libertarian. I'm totally against any kind of government redistribution. And this is why I know I'm the poorest person in this room, but I don't plan to be poor that much longer. Mm. I gave myself three years. Anything, and he said, when I strike it rich, I don't want the government redistributing anything away from me. So that's a kind of upward mobility mm-hmm. driven. But racism has also, what, what it did is it fractured our poor majority. And you'll see that in a lot of southern states, in the 60s, the labor organizers couldn't organize poor white workers because they didn't want to be organizing with the blacks. Yeah. Um, so that was another thing. So you'll see that a lot of lower income whites belong to the Republican Party. And they're often described as the what's the matter with Kansas problem. And that, that has been one factor. But I think the... Um, the, the inequality part goes to another oversimplification in our discourse, which is, I think that the, the white on white resentment in this country is, is as big a part of the problem and mm-hmm. what drove Trumpism, right? So, we have very roughly speaking, we're, we have coastal whites. This is a misnomer because there are not all whites and they're not all on the coasts. But by and large, I kind of mean the people in this room. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's funny to think of ourselves as elites because many of us don't have money, but it's like an edu- educated elite. Um, very, tend to be cosmopolitan, tend to be multicultural, progressive, open minded. The view of people—all these are all basically all my friends, <laughs> um, you know—but uh, the view of my colleagues uh, tends to be extremely negative about the Trump voters in the Heartland, and it goes in the other direction, right? The people from the Heartland view. Um, There's a racialist component there, too, because the people on the coast, the whites on the coast, are often seen as minority-loving and immigrant-loving and always loving the global poor. Well, we on the coast are often depicted as not real Americans, like not really caring about the real Americans, so embedded in this kind of white-versus-white conflict is almost like a fight for for who America is going to be. I don't really think any side is blameless, especially it's not the people so much as the um, the 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 leaders, because it's so easy to get more votes by playing to people's tribalism and fears and social media. I mean, cable news. Oh, my gosh. It just, you know, you turn on any station.
0: Well, you know, the other statistic uh, that I saw that was really surprising, this other author I interviewed was Yasha Monk. You know, Mm -hmm. he is. He's a a guy up at the Kennedy School of Government, Mm -hmm. and it's about, are we really at risk of losing our democracy? And one of the statistics that he quoted is that young people actually don't feel, in as high a percentage as people our age, with some exception, that democracy is critical to our country. Mm -hmm. So is some element of this of what you're talking about driving that, do you think? Or they're just two separate unpleasant facts?
1: I, I think I have a contrarian view on this, too. So I think that a lot of people romanticize the democracy that we've had in this country.
0: Right, because they're white and um, they
1: haven't been oppressed oh, or. No, actually, that too. You know, people know that. But I think that the history behind our successful free market democracy is actually a lot darker than people know. So mm. at the very beginning, we didn't have anything close to majority rule. Right. We didn't let most of the poor people vote for a lot. I mean, you no, know, we had um, property qualifications and all yeah. kinds of things, not to mention for minorities, women. Yeah. yeah. So we had, a very, we, we had a very gradual process of democratization. So when we had anything close to laissez faire capitalism, We actually didn't have full fledged democracy. Mm -hmm. By the time we really did have universal suffrage, we had the New Deal in place. Right. So so I think this is partly why we mess up our dealings with other countries. We want them to go through a process of democratization that we didn't ourselves go through. Just like have overnight elections now. And I think this is hitting us in the face right now
0: because I think it's an interesting point. I think,
1: yeah, I think a lot of people I know there are all these books out there about how democracy is dying and and there is a lot to be worried about. You know, I I get that. Um, I think that there's a tendency to want to define democracy to be the thing that we think is good. I've always known, and people in developing countries have always known, that democracy has to include a level of majority vote. I mean, I think really smart people can try to define all the bad things out of democracy. I've seen people in Latin America do this, which is democracy is about minority protections and property protections. and, And, of course, that's what a good democracy should have. But if democracy only includes minority protections and not doesn't allow the majority any power then that's just a dictatorship. So there's only so much that you can do to adjust the democracy. So my point is that I think democracy always has contained these dangers, right? Populism. We just have been pretty lucky in this country not to experience the most latent forms of of majority rule. Um I've I used to go to conferences down in Latin America and I could tell that my colleagues It's only because I'm from a developing country that I know this. You know, I'm from the Philippines, where all the elites are terrified of democracy because there's very little, there's so much poverty and very little education. They don't trust the masses. Um, And America's been very lucky. We, We just feel like democracy's always worked very well. I was at a dinner party again, and somebody super progressive whispered, after eight glasses of wine. She was like, you know what? I think maybe we should have knowledge requirements for voters. You know,
0: um, and I think when people ask... I think that, that that idea actually is gaining some currency. I mean, you hear it at more than one dinner party. You hear it more. And it's usually coming from a
1: progressive space because this particular quote, was there's a piece in The New Yorker about a pretty... Um, the Libertarian at Georgetown. Anyway, he's a philosopher, but he wrote... Um, Uh, a book about uh, you know really seriously exploring this idea and what he said was look if you let if you ban the bottom eighty percent of whites from voting in this country that could be the best solution for the blacks they're thinking I mean they're thinking of write that down you'll find it it's in a New Yorker article I was stunned my husband showed it to me I was sure it was not true Um, but the idea is again we're, they're focusing on the trump voters right they're thinking that only such people but they don't go so, yes who could vote for the idea is who could yeah. vote for this person uh who is all these terrible things and it's only because they're so so that's where it's coming from but this dynamic has been in play in developing countries for a long long time elites have wondered exactly how fast should this process of enfranchisement occur and in America, it's just been off the table. You know, I mean, we would never propose, uh, you know, disenfranchisement or gradual enfranchisement. Um, but I think that's partly what's happening, too. So I think the conversation about democracy and authoritarianism is all mixed up right now. The most comfortable one for us on the coast to talk about is we're lurching towards authoritarianism because Donald Trump is, is like Pinochet and Hitler put together. You know, I think that's the easiest, hmm. easiest thing to say. <laughs> You know, I think that's a caricature. Of course, everything that we're doing, it's very important. And I'm very proud of my law students, many of whom are here, are fighting, standing up for the rule of law. And that's constantly under attack. But I think another piece of it is I think elites are having a backlash against the popular side of democracy. I think it really bothers them to see the masses voting and behaving this way. And I think that's something we have to deal with. I mean, that is a part of democracy.
0: After... You know, reading your book and um, causing me as a reader to think about our country in a wider way, you nonetheless come back to a kind of optimism about the possibilities that do exist, despite the fact that things look a lot scarier than I think they've looked in most of our lifetimes. Now, maybe we weren't paying as much attention before and we should have seen uh, the fissure lines. But what do you think are the possibilities of our overcoming the kind of tribalism or identity politics that are now just separating everybody out?
1: I've been most criticized um, about this part of my book, and I think that's right, because I I had a huge policy section where I offered, and then I just decided, um, I, I think this is going to have to come from just the will of the people and some brave leaders, right? I, I was saying, if you're having a fight with your sibling or a girlfriend or your spouse or a child. You sometimes say, you know, I'm trying my best, but you actually secretly know at some level that you're still furious at the mm-hmm. other side and that you're not really trying to get over the argument at all. You're just trying to land some more zingers. Um, I think that's where were we you are. in my house? <laughs> no, I was in mine. <laughs> um, But I I think we all know it, you know, and I think that's kind of where America is right now. I think so, even though my, my, my insight at the end is that there are very many optimistic studies that show that if you could pull people out of their tribes um and force them to really interact as human beings it's unbelievable how much progress you can make so you have to pu- and it's not just diversity it's not just exposure the studies are very clear that if you just throw people together and they can't diverse people together and they can't actually interact as human beings that just makes it worse um but if you take two people from opposite sides of the political spectrum and have them talk about you know i was saying pets just dogs, or or their children, hopes for their children, or food, or cooking, or whatever, baseball. Um, People will find common ground very quickly. So I'm an optimist in the sense that I I, I see the good in people, I think you know most people. Um, And the integration of the military was the best example in the 50s, where people said, oh my god, this will never work, but when you finally integrated and people had to trust their lives to people of different skin colors, different religions, it was amazing what happened. so I think, um, I guess I'll end, I mean, I, I think there has to be individual will that we have to want to each, I, and it's hard mm. for all of us. And I think, I think maybe the lesson to take from Donald Trump that, you know, he kind of did it outside the box. You know, sometimes when I hear these clips of all the presidents we love, they, they are very canned. I mean, it's like, oh, that's presidential. Well, so the, the concept in my book that we didn't talk about is I think America is completely special Unique among the major powers in being what I call a supergroup. A country that, on the one hand, has a very strong, overarching national identity. America. Um, and at the same time, allows individual tribes and subgroup identities to flourish. And so that you can be, you know, uh, I'm Nigerian American, Ghanaian American, Egyptian American, Irish American, Chinese American, and be intensely patriotic at the same time. A good example is China not a supergroup, because it's got the first, it's got this super strong national identity. We're all Han Chinese, but the individual identities are not allowed to flourish. Uyghurs, Tibetans, completely suppressed. Libya is a great example of the other extreme. Mm-hmm. Libya is like, like the United States. It's a multi-ethnic nation, actually. It's got, I think, 140 tribes. They speak different languages. And the reason that's a f- largely a failed state now is because that overarching Libyan identity, which never is... Never took hold. Never took hold. And it's divided. It's a colonial product, um, but it just completely splintered. So I think that both sides of our political spectrum have been playing with poison. That we have something very precious. This is a very, I, I won't go into it, but I don't think even countries like France or the U.K. are supergroups. I think Canada and Australia are the runners of, you know. Um, and I think that we're, we're really risking damaging this. And it's coming from both the left and right, attacks on both the, the, the larger American identity And just allowing that piece of America, you know, on the other side, allowing individual identities, you know, whether you're Muslim American or Jewish American or whatever American to feel like you can you can have your identity flourish and still be, you know, a proud American.
0: I mean, I agree with you. One of the things that this also goes back to this Beverly Tatum, she talked about a very interesting project in Atlanta, which is called the Friend Project. And it was the mayor of Atlanta's notion of just what you were saying, and that the way this bubbles up is individually. And the Friends Project challenges people in Atlanta to commit, to sign up, to make the commitment to say, I am going to reach out to a person that." lives in a different way looks different from me and make at least one attempt to have lunch or coffee with them and the impact of this over the few or number of years that the project has existed has been extraordinary because it becomes kind of viral so all of a sudden you have a new friend and you think well you know what i'm going to invite them to my dinner party and or you know barbecue or whatever and that there is an individual way. You know, we're waiting, I think, to some extent for, you know, the big solution. And I think what you talk about now and what you talked about in the book is that it can happen at a lot of different levels. Yeah. And I, after I proposed
1: that, you know, there was a Washington Post review where there's an organization called Better Angels mm-hmm. that is exactly oh, right. right where they take you know people who voted for Trump and people on the other side and they it's kind of a structured thing and it's not like kumbaya it's not like they then love each other but the point is that they they start to at least be able to interact as human beings you know uh, see see the other side as fellow Americans um, as opposed to just demonic other people and they I do think that it's really social media and cable news and a lot of Sort of the loudest voices on campus sometimes because I you know, like Sarah Silverstein has a show where she's doing so I, 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 Van Jo, You know there are yeah. a lot of people trying, um, but it's just it's just gets so much more attention the the the, the splashier, more extreme stuff. I mean the hate mongering is much much more entertaining.
0: I I heard three people today tell me they shut down their Facebook or Twitter account because they just can't stand the vile level of screaming, basically. But what will we'll put that back in the can? I think we have to have individual will. I think some politician,
1: you know, looking for 2020, 2018, I think, I think somebody's going to hit that magic formula. and That will and emerge. We'll, we'll, yeah, and just be... Because it's, it's another way of being different, which is there's something all messed up about our political categories right now. Our political mm-hmm. parties make no sense whatsoever. Right. I, I also think that our political parties have the random things, like why should national security and patriotism and family values be things that republicans get to have so i think there's a lot that's nonsensical about our political affiliations right now and the boxes are very unattractive actually so so i think there could be a breakout candidate um you know i often talk about this guy jd vance who's my former student
0: um
1: who almost ran and um and I keep telling the him Billy
0: Elegy guy. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah.
1: Oh, I keep man. telling him because he, he's, you know, I'm just, you know, the authentic voice that doesn't quite fit in either side, I think, is shows why his book was so compelling. I mean, now that he's become famous, everybody was hating on him, too. Yeah, right. Um,
0: but but before <laughs> I heard I, a yeah, woman yeah. from Appalachia talk about uh, he's not talking for us. I know. I know. Yeah.
1: And of course, he's not. He's not talking for everybody, you know. Um, but but that's become politicized, too, now you know, as everything becomes. But but just, I'm only speaking about him as a human being. You know, I think that there's got to be some younger political candidates, maybe some people in this room, who will just start to do things their own mm-hmm. way and not, you know, just, just kind of do the party line, which
0: I think is clearly not working on both sides. I, I realized in preparing to talk with you, your book has already been reviewed in like everywhere your book was reviewed in the New York Times today it was reviewed in the standard you're the column in the New York Times about what's on your book stand and all by the way i i just interviewed james foreman locking up our own yeah. we both love that book yeah. we recommend you read that book it's incredible it is incre- and yeah. he's the sweetest man yeah yeah, he's our colleague. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah, and, yeah, he's definitely. And that book actually is
1: is um, should be read by more people. It's pro- it's it should be it's actually provocative. It is yeah. provocative. It's, it's about race, but it's it's provocative, and um, I think it should be in the in the
0: public discourse. You know, one of the things that we talked about, that's sort of putting it putting everything back into our individual category, that uh, Michael Van Leesten and Jason Stanley and I talked about is this idea of putting of having book clubs that are in urban centers or suburban communities that feels like it would be perfect for discussion among people that have dramatically different perspectives or orientations. But using the book as a device, you know, it's the same thing I find in book clubs, that if you have a character in a—I've watched this with book club discussions. So if you have a character, we'll call her Abigail, and she might represent my— my friend Susie but I can't really talk about Susie but I can talk about Abigail and I can say can you believe that Abigail like left her husband and had an affair or did this and you know and Susan's sitting right there but it's safe because you're saying (laughs) her name is Abigail but I wonder if picking a book where you're sticking to the book as the Basis for discussion, so it doesn't feel personalized. Actually, could become a device. I love that idea. I love that idea. Another idea that's that I um, I'm actually thinking about, actually working on
1: is um, you know how a lot of you guys um, have gap years. It's like a new, Mm -hmm. uh, which is it's fun and wonderful. But what I think a lot of people, I see a lot of relatively privileged people do is they go with their friends to. Australia, the Netherlands, or Guatemala, mm-hmm. usually with their friends. Um, and it's, and they still do wonderful, important things. But what if you had a thing where people from parts of America go to other parts of America where they would normally never go? Mm-hmm. And not in a kind of condescending way, like here we are to help you, but more like, um, you know, doing a common project together where mm-hmm. as equals. I think that would be a great way of, again, having people interact as human beings. Um, on a project, a collective project, getting to know each other. and I think something Well, it looks like, like there, there's
0: a, a summer camp in the United States that brings Palestinian and oh, Israeli Israelis, Jews. Yeah. They've been doing it for decades, and they're finding that they're developing the seeds of elements of cooperation because they know each other as, like, you know, kayakers and yeah. swimmers yeah. and... You know, they've gotten together in a whole different way. Yeah, I really believe in that, actually. So before we um, open it for questions, let me ask you a question which has nothing to do with your book, but the question I ask um, every author, and that is, what's the book that changed your life?
1: Wow, that's so hard. Well, I'm, I'm going to punt on this one and say, I, I remember being absolutely fascinated by the concept of the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember which first book I read. Um, With um, such a thing. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, Pale Fire by Nabokov and and, and Confed- there are all these books and, and Battle Hymn is actually written mm-hmm. as an unreliable la- narrator. Um, uh, so, I, that's not one book, but I remember thinking for some reason I that just clicked with me. I, I, I love mm-hmm. books like that, and um, uh, I, I, it's kind of hard to explain why. I just think it's like, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a, so, so, I, I mean, I'll i try to think of which book it is. Maybe I'll say, actually, I love Pelfar. I can go with that one. All right. But not Balkov's Pelfar. I don't know if people know it. It's really strange because it's, um, it's a very difficult book, actually, and I read it with Lulu, and it took us like two years to be together. But it's written as a Poem like a poem by a king, but then the the real book is in the end notes. So the end notes it's a conceit where you're you're reading this poem, but it's and then as you read the end notes, you start to realize that the king is not a king, but possibly a murderer. <laughs> you know, um, and it's a zany, insane. It's mm-hmm. utterly insane. So I like. I've like never that. gotten through it. It's very difficult. I mean, I, I did it almost like um yeah I know it's not like, like a, a novel. challenge. It's like a challenge. It's like yeah. a challenge. And um, he's such a um, Nabokov loved language so. I, I always would tell my kids, you have to look up every word so that you, know, you must master the definition of every word. You need exact definitions. The challenge with that book is he made up words. <laughs> <laughs> he made up all kinds of words. So I would always have to guess, is this a made-up word or a real word? And some, you know, so, so Lulu and I spent a lot of time on that. It was fun.
0: So in closing, Amy, there's a, there's a couple of comments I would like to share with everyone. You know, I think in every one of your books, every one of which I've read, I've um, read, What you do is one of the most important things I think we need writers and leaders, which you are, to do is to be willing to be provocative. And I think each of your books have started conversations that are, you know, the sort of cliché throwing the pebble into the water. And I do hope that the positive element and the education that your book offers does create that kind of dialogue that can move us forward to think about it in a different way because you you talk about this in the book that, and I think we don't think about this often enough, that some of the kumbaya that you hear about in the country wants to erase differences. And what you say in the book is... No, we need to respect our differences and then have an identity that is encompassing of that respect. And that's a reasonable possibility because it's not saying, well, you shouldn't like this person or you're an idiot for not liking. It's understanding that you can have a different opinion about immigration. You can have a different opinion about race or, you know, and still... Have a kind of respect and understanding for each other. So I am thrilled to see everybody's talking about your book. I'm, gl- I'm sure you'll get out there and talk to everyone. And I think it is the kind of seed that could begin to have people think differently about what is positive, even though it looks sort of dismal. Thank you so much, I'll <laughs> Great, great. Oh my God. Thanks again to Amy Chua. Make sure to pick up a copy of Amy's book, Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations, which is out now. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. What are the books that you're reading, or who would you like to hear on this podcast, and what is the book that changed your life? Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.